Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, in honor of the 72nd Annual DGA Awards, we're bringing back our annual series of episodes devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees Theatrical Feature Film Symposium. Now in its 29th year, the event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Theatrical Feature Film. This year's nominees include Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite, Sam Mendes, the director of 1917, Martin Scorsese, the director of The Irishman, Quentin Tarantino, the director of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Taika Waititi, the director of Jojo Rabbit. These talented directors were gathered on January 25th at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, with Mr. Scorsese joining via video from New York, and director Bong accompanied by his translator, Sharon Choi, to discuss the craft of directing and the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part one of our Meet the Nominees special, and listen to the five nominees talk about where they like to be on set when directing, and share details about shooting the openings and closings of their film. Um, You know, I was thinking earlier that... (laughs) Marty, good to see you. Uh, hello, Bong, everybody, Sam. Uh, yes, there you are, Quentin, and uh, yes, yes, sir. I'm glad you see, see them and we see you. Um, yes. You know, art, um, this uh, Thomas Merton, a theolo- the- theologist, once said that art enables us to find ourselves <coughs> and to lose ourselves at the same time. And the work that you've done has allowed us, in fact, to do that in very unique ways. You know, I was looking for what's, what's common in these movies? Is there anything that's sort of similar? Well, four of your movies are, are period pieces. That's similar. Actually, in five of your movies, you actually have children. Of course, yours is a baby. But they're still working with that baby, I suspect, was a challenge in itself. All of your movies deal with violence. There's just no question. And you also reflect something that Teddy Roosevelt said, which was that it, If anything is worth doing, it takes effort, it takes pain, and it takes difficulty. And you all have been able to, in fact, realize through pain, effort, and difficulty some remarkable movies, so thank you all. Let me introduce each one of you. Sam Mendes for 1917. Taika Waititi for Jojo Rabbit. Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And director Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. How is it said in Korean? Uh, Ki Seng-chung. Ki Seng-chung <laughs> for Parasite. <laughs> Next to him is his translator, uh, Sharon Choi. Thank you, Sharon, for being here. And Marty... You know, sometimes we're going to look at the monitor over here to our right, and sometimes over there where you might be able to see us. But Marty Scorsese for the Irishman. And 
And since we've got a monitor here, I think it's, uh, since we're all directors here, I think a good question might start with, in fact, how do you deal with the monitors in Video Village? And we'll talk about that in 1917, since what did you do with the monitors and where were they and where were you? I've never, never been more dependent on my monitor than on this movie because, because we were working in such long takes. We were doing eight minutes, you know, seven minutes at a time. Most of the time, I couldn't see the actors at all in person. And I, I normally hate that. I, I much prefer sitting next to the camera or at least being alongside it. I'm always a bit suspicious of monitor screens. But here, I needed to be, I was sort of tied to it. And it was also huge. Um, because we were shooting digital, I was able to have a very high quality monitor. And because I was trying to judge so many different things about the take and, and judge whether it was the take that was going to be in the final movie. And that's something that normally, you don't have to do until you're in the cutting room. Um, and if there's one thing I missed on this movie, I missed the direct contact with the actors while we were shooting. And I also missed having that nice time, eight weeks, 10 weeks, where you're in the room and you've got a nice cup of coffee and you can chat about the movie and work out what it is. I didn't have any of that. I had to make those decisions, those editorial decisions that would normally be editorial, as we were shooting. So this is, of all the movies I've made, I was, I was completely tethered to my monitor screen. Were you alone with the monitor? Or did you I was all alone, Jeremy. Was there all a video alone. village? That's what I'm it's sort of... Me on the rock face. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I, was, I had my nice script supervisor next to me, and I did have a cup of coffee on set. But, you know, uh, I was in a... It's a bit, you want to be specific? This yes. is obviously the occasion to be specific. I was in a horse box, right? One of those things that you carry horses in, because we were shooting on the on the land and we had to wheel, they had to wheel me around in this, you know, this sort of, so it was a wheel, it was a, a video village on wheels. Um, and in the next horse box was uh, my video assist person and the next horse box along which is in fact a kebab, a kebab van. We put kebab a sign on the side of it was Roger Deakins. Um, I don't know why we called it a kebab van, it just looked like a kebab van and it seemed like a funny idea at the time. And then next to him was his, his uh, focus puller, Andy. Um, and so really, the kind of core group making the film were kind of over the hill where you couldn't see us because most of the time we're shooting 360. And so if I had to talk to the actor, I had to walk over the hill to see him. And, and there were several times when I, had, I called cut and they couldn't hear me. So they just kept acting, you know, off down the hill, acting away. And I thought, oh, let's let them finish the scene, you know. So, yeah, there they were, innocent, you know, uh, thinking that, that what they were doing was possibly in the movie when there'd been some error or what have you. But also, I couldn't talk to the camera operator. I couldn't talk to the, the sound operator. It was quite strange in that regard. Um, but because we'd rehearsed for so long, um, I, I felt like we, we knew exactly what we were looking for. Um, but still, it, it just felt like the weight every day. I mean, normally on set, I would play a bit of music. I would be a bit more, you know, there would be a bit more give and take, more chat with the actors. But there was this weight every day, which was we have to make the decision about this scene now. N not later, now. We have to do it now. So, uh, and that meant that I, there was a kind of peace that descended into my horse box. It was quiet. There was no music. There was very little chat. And it was a very unusual situation because also we had that thing that normally, and, and I'm sure everyone here is used to this, uh, you know, if you've got a close-up, the hair and makeup are going to be interested. And if you've got a big shot of something blowing up, there's a fair chance your special effects are going to be involved, but the hair and makeup, not so much. And on this movie, every department was engaged in every second of every shot. 
So there was this feeling that, that all, you know, 120 of us or however many were there on set on a daily basis were completely glued to the monitor screen in, in a way that probably is not entirely healthy, but that's how we had to judge the movie. And the others that you just talked about were looking at a monitor somewhere else, like hair and makeup and special sure. effects, not in your room. No, no one's, I, I, my rule, and it's been this way on all the movies, I find it really difficult to have anyone looking over my shoulder at all. Uh, I, I can only work with the script supervisor I hate that feeling. If someone else is in my, I don't know what these guys feel, but if someone else is in my space, my first thought is, what do they think about it? And not what do I think about it? And I had to work out more than ever on this movie, did, was I happy with it? Was I pleased with what we were getting? So I, I never allow anyone near the monitor screen. More than happy at the end of a take to get notes or thoughts or anything from anyone. But while we're shooting, I didn't want anyone there. So here it, it was quite a lonely place to be. Thank you, thank you. Taika? How did you use the monitor, if you use the monitors, how did you use the monitor in your particular case? Uh, most of the time I don't um, use the monitor, I sit, I mean, as you used to, uh, next to the camera and just be with the actors, because also I'm uh, often changing the script a lot and just yelling words at them. Um, <laughs> and I need to be very close to them. I can't be off in another room screaming it out. Uh, but yeah, so I'll just, yeah, I'll be like just sort of engaging them, with them quite a lot. Obviously, it's very different. If I'm in the scene, then I'm not looking at anything at all, except for the actor. Um, and but then if I and then sometimes I've become lazier. Uh, I've I've uh, discovered uh, sofas, and so uh, now sometimes I like to get a, a couch and I like to relax if I'm going to look at the monitor. I like to sort of sit like that. <laughs> and look at it, because I want to see it how most people are going to see it. Uh, like that, with a remote control, and a cup of tea, and, so, uh, and then I sort of go to sleep for half of it. And then uh, and I wake up and I say, was that good? <laughs> um, or I go to the toilet. When you were dealing with your own... When you were dealing with your own performance, um, um, in order to, quote, check what you did, would you go to the monitor? Would you do playback? And how would you use it if you did? No, I wouldn't look at my own stuff. I know my limitations. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I'm capable of. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it would be, I'd be more disappointing for me to go and watch back what I did. <laughs> no, I didn't want to do that. I'd like to, like to think that I was doing OK. But, I'd never, but I've never done that. I've, I've always felt, I mean, I've always given, if I'm in, a, in one of my films, I give myself the easier roles <laughs> and uh, where it doesn't take, it's not too taxing on me. So I will, uh, yeah, I will go. And also like that particular role was, uh, was very strange to, to be dressed up like that and directing. <laughs> <laughs> It's not, it's, it's not something I'd, not something I recommend. Um, you suddenly become a lot nicer. You suddenly like, you're a lot nicer to your crew. You overcompensate. You know, you come in and it's like you might say something like, "Okay, you come through the door. Yeah, okay, come down there. Say the line. Maybe you cross over there. That's not an order." <laughs> That's a suggestion. You don't have to do it. You have to, so I'm not telling you what to do. Uh, do you deal with the video village? Are there other people by this monitor? And how do you handle it? Uh, sometimes, but I usually I will just 
I, I will go to the village, look at the 45 people that have suddenly <laughs> disobeyed me and like come and look at the monitor and then get frustrated and just go back in the room with a camera. Um, I don't, I'm the same, I don't like this feeling of like, because people will go, that was good, and I hate that because <laughs> I don't know if it was good, and then I'll go, oh, was it? Okay, maybe it was good. And so I get confused. So I don't, yeah, I feel, uh, it, uh, yeah, I get confused with this when there's too many people around. Oh, I didn't have a um, horse truck, so that's my next. Quentin, um, <laughs> monitor on your set, and, and there are so many sort of moving pieces and particularly moving shots. Where, where are you with it, and how did you use it? Uh, uh, we didn't have a we didn't we didn't have a monitor. We don't we don't have a a, a video village or anything like that. Um, we get those little hand ones that you get every once in a while if you're like running around doing something and and, and uh, you know, you'll glance at it every once in a while to make sure like the framing hasn't gone completely haywire or something. But like I didn't really do any steady cams in this movie. But it's like but normally like in a like in a big, big deal Steadicam shot, I'm running with the Steadicam guy. I'm running right with him. I'll have a little thing there and I, I glance at it every once in a while, but it's more about just matching his speed and whatever. And then, and uh, whether than, and I hate playback. And so it's like, uh, when I get through with one of those shots, like I, I know which, you know, out of nine shots, I know which one is the one. Without playing back, without like watching it during the take to see if the left or the right of the frame does this or then, you just kind of know it. You just feel it. You know, you you and the you and the dude, you're you're uh, you're, you're connected that way. Um, so in this movie, yeah, so we have the little hand ones every once in a while when you absolutely positively need to. But no, there is no video village. There's a chair town. There's a place where we put all the chairs where people get to like drink coffee and everything. We have chair town. Uh, uh, but uh, most of the actors are usually in chair town. Uh, the producers are in chair town. All right. Uh, uh, but no video village. <laughs> Bong, for you, um, in terms of video village, or in terms of monitors, what, how do you use them? If you use them. Actually, that just, I don't know why, but it's strange. In Korean industry, we have on-set editor in every production. So video release is relatively bigger than monitor 있고 옆에 바로 video assist 옆에 So next to the monitor we have an onset editor who's constantly editing the footage as we're shooting. 한국인들이 좀 성격이 급해서 그런 면이 있는 것 같아요. I think it's because Koreans are very impatient. 근데 그 Sometimes it is helpful, especially with action sequence, but it can be very frustrating because crew members constantly want to check the footage, the actors want to check the tone of their performances, so sometimes I just want to crush that laptop with Final Cut Pro. <laughs> so overall, I depend on it uh, a lot. I've gotten used to that system and I think it's great, but it doesn't really connect to the final post-production process or the editing when we're actually trying to edit the film. We start from square one and onset editing is just for reference as we're shooting. So sometimes the video assist, uh, assistant suffers a little bit because we have to set up another monitor. There will be the video village and then the cinematographer. And next to the cinematographer, I would um, uh, install a new monitor so that I can look at the monitor, just raise my eyes and look at the actors. So when you position yourself, do you, or do you go back and forth between monitor and actors? Where are you? I try to be close to the actors as possible. Got it. 
Thank you, thank you. Marty, I'm looking at you here, I'm looking at you there. Maybe we can see each other. So monitors with you on this particular picture, how did you handle it and what do you do with Video Village if you have it? Well, it, there is a Video Village. Um, I also, as many of you just, most of you just said, I don't like too many people in it. I have my script person with me. Um, uh, there are one or two people who come by and start uh, maybe, I, I enjoy getting distracted sometimes uh, <laughs> and uh, having conversations, but I don't like everybody looking at what we're doing. And um, in this case, because of the uh, amazing amount of computer generated images and the uh, three lenses on each camera and two or three cameras shooting at one time, so you got nine lenses, I did tend to stay uh, near the monitors, quite honestly, uh, as much as possible. However, there were, um, and I don't like it. I don't like it when you say, well, there's a hair and makeup people over there and they have a monitor. And there's another, I'm going on the set. I walk around sometimes and I, there was a lot of people on this crew because of the CGI, because of the three lenses on each camera. There were nine cameras, most of them. We didn't use all of them all the time, but there was a lot of crew. And I'd walk by sometimes and I'd say, those people are looking at my film. Who are they? <laughs> I have a live scene going on here. We're improvising something, and this is going on. Who are they? And my David Webb, my AD, would tell me, Marty, that's the hair and makeup. Oh, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. One day, it turns out Anya Sparta was on the set watching. I didn't know. You know. <laughs> So she, I love her, and so we were talking afterwards, but I, if I had wanted her to see a scene I was doing, uh, I would have liked to have known um, which scene she was, she was, uh, you know, uh, she was going to be uh, uh, party to in a sense. So, but it was very funny, but uh, the, um, I try to control that as much as possible. The thing on this picture, um, the dialogue scenes, I uh, usually stood right by the camera or the cameras or the lenses, whatever they were. And uh, I was like an eavesdropper. In a sense, I was hanging out with them in a way, uh, whether it was Catherine Narducci or, and Joe Pesci or uh, De Niro and Al Pacino, particularly in the scene the, uh, towards the end of the film where he tells Al that it is what it is. Um, that was <laughs> a transcendent moment, just standing near them and watching right in front of me. And also the crew felt that they'd come over to me and said to be on the set would something like that happen between these two acting giants. You know, nobody, I don't know. There are people who, who uh, see it and they're, they're not that impressed. Fine. I'm just saying that I felt something. And it was watching them. I had the video below me, but I was right almost at their feet. And um, uh, so for me, uh, because of the, the CGI and because of makeup and stuff like that, I had to combine both. But I preferred very often, or in these hotel scenes where they're sitting and arguing or they're watching the Cuban Missile Crisis, I'm on the set with them as much as possible, you know, uh, as much as possible. <laughs> I did find, though, that in the uh, big uh, appreciation night sequence, I was able to have two or three cameras going and I'd say, OK, punch over there. It was almost, almost like shooting a, 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 the Rolling Stones and shine a light, you know, where I said, pick up that camera, go there. Or I would do things uh, like uh, I just wanted them. I just wanted the people uh, at the tables, uh, Keitel and, uh, uh, and Don Lombardazzi and uh, Pesci and all of them to be eating and enjoying themselves. And I didn't give them any necessary any real dialogue. It was just to show 
the the event and how they were participating in it. And so at a Cameron Harvey, for example, and uh, Harvey and I know each other for a very long time. So the, uh, the waitress goes by, puts food down in front of him, right? And he starts to eat the food. And I said, hey, send the waitress back and take the food away. He's the big boss. You don't do it. Anyway, things like that. <laughs> But the other thing was that a couple of times, a couple of times it got to be uh, problematic because there was a big scene where uh, Al Pacino is as Jimmy Hoffa making the big speech. And there were like a couple of hundred guys in this big room. And I decided to stay by the video. The way Al was working was that I just told him, if you feel something, just repeat it. Just keep repeating until you feel right with it. Well, he repeated. And by the time you couldn't hear cut because all of them were screaming. And I, I got up and, you know, it, 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 you have to sometimes at a certain age, you have to uh, uh, you have to be careful of how you expend your energy. And when I went to the room and I looked in, I couldn't get through those people. I couldn't get through. So he must have gone done the scene 10 times before somebody got a message to stop. <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing. That I should not have. I should have been in there. But if I had been in there, it would have been too much smoke. I'd start coughing. It, you know. Anyway, um, uh, I found the video very helpful there at that point. But I do find that, and this is a quick story, uh, in Goodfellas, I learned about the uh, seduction and the corruption of the video uh, uh, monitor uh, through Paul Servino. Uh, it was a scene in Goodfellas towards the end where um, Ray Liotta goes to him in his luncheonette to ask for help. And he's frying sausages, Paulie. And he looks at him and he says, I can't help you. It screwed up. I can't. He gives him some money. And uh, I was in the very next room with the video and I was watching and uh, medium close up like this on Paulie Servino. And uh, I, I said, let's do it again. And I said, a little more maybe emotional with him just to show that you're like, he was like your, like your, your protege, you know? I said, yeah, okay. It does it again. And I went in again. I said, I think a little more. If you can, and he said, Marty, can I make a suggestion? Can you stand here and look at me? <laughs> and I did, and he was fine. The tears were there. And that's when I realized, don't get lazy. <laughs> don't get lazy, you know. Um, often, though, it's kind of uh, enjoyable because you can actually see the film start to come together. You know, but to, to, it's a dangerous thing, those tents, because it cuts you off from the action. It cuts you off from the people and the crew. Um, granted, I don't like to be on a set that there's too much noise going on with banging and crashing as I can't take it. So I tend to pull away at that time. But uh, it's a great tool. Um, and like Quentin says, to actually go with the Steadicam guy, go, go running with him or her, you know, you know what's there, you know. Uh, but I, um, I find it um, uh, a great help, but also a great temptation. Well spoken. And sinful. Well spoken. Well spoken. Um, I want to talk about an endings. Um, you know, openings and endings of a movie or any story become, to some degree, some of the most important things that all of us have to deal with. Um, you know, if, if the, it's, it's been said, if the end is good, all is good. 
Uh, I think I was talking about our own lives, actually, but just talking about movies <laughs> specifically. So I'd like to talk to you all about how you evolved as directors. In this case, it may be as writer-directors, the ending. Sam, specifically, this moment when he goes through all of the wounded soldiers and then finds the brother and then goes to that tree, that lone tree. And I'm really interested in particularly even that last moment about going to that tree. How did that evolve? What were some of the directorial decisions that came to get it to that place? Um, well, I actually, when I wrote the scroll, co-wrote it with Christy, it was a different ending. It was a slightly different ending. Uh, he was, um, he was sitting on, a, on the bank of a stream, as it happens, and it was when we went, uh, we were location scouting in, in the West Country in, in England, and we saw that tree, me and Roger, just me and Roger Deakins, and we both looked at each other, and it just seemed like, it seemed so obvious suddenly that he should, the movie should start with him leaning against a tree with his eyes closed and end with him in exactly the same position, and yet everything has changed. So it just seemed like such an obvious idea. Even I did, I, you know, many of the, the good days on set with Roger, you, you say almost nothing because you're so in tune. And we made, I don't know, four or five movies together. You're so in tune that, that you don't really need to talk very much. And that was one of those nice moments. And I went and stood underneath the tree on my own and, and it, it just, it sounds ridiculous, but it felt magic. And so for me, that kind of was an example of the landscape of the movie talking back. But you know, I think it also, you have to go back. A lot of the reason I wrote this movie in the first place was because the experience I've, I had on the two Bond movies of being in the room with the writers from, with a blank page gave me the courage to do it myself. But you talk about endings and how, you know, if the ending's right, then everything's right. Well, I had the experience on the second Bond movie of not having an ending when I started shooting. And, and I found it really uh, not a good experience. Because for me, one of the things I'd enjoyed about Skyfall was that I knew the ending was M dies, a new M arrives, uh, Bond is back, you know, we reintroduce Q, we reintroduce Money Penny. I had it all kind of, and every scene in the movie was moving to that point. And, you know, you, you're so aware when you don't have that, you don't know what, you know, the ending is that that it's everything, because you, you, you're kind of directionless in a way, if, if you're not pointing in the right direction from the start. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to me on this one, this was a reaction against that in many ways. You know, Even though it was technically complex, it wasn't nearly as complicated as working on several continents with several units and all of the things that go along with the Bond movie. You know, the, the, the choice in a way, you could read the choice to just be in one single uh, continuous shot or the appearance of that, to be a reaction against multi-camera shoots, um, multiple units, and all of those things. So even though it was complicated, it seems so simple in its shape and form compared to doing a thundering great franchise film. So, yeah, I mean, I felt like, and you know, I, I you know, I, I, I think of the movies that, that of, of the that the other guys have done, you know, that are here today, and I and I think the endings are all just unbelievably memorable. I mean, the last shot of Parasite, the last shot of, We're about of, the, of the Irishman. I know, but you think about it and you just think, of course, that's the only way it could end. That, that's where it's heading the whole time. That's where it's going. It would seem crazy. You know, it makes sense of everything that follows. The, the last shot of, of Quentin's movie, obviously. You know what I mean? The, the whole thing just seems right. And I think without that sense of where you're going, I, I do think it's, it's really, really difficult. And I have, 
experienced it in its opposite form. In evolving that sequence to, <clears throat> to get to that tree, I don't know if it's, I know there's lots of blended shots. It, I don't know if it's the same shot that walks through all of those, where, where we actually see the result of war. Yeah. Um, and we see all these bodies twisted and torn to pieces by the horror of, of war. And was that all part of that getting to that tree or yeah. did, wow. Well, it's actually two shots. The, the shot that begins in the trench, goes up through the field hospital and ends with Schofield turning to see Blake's brother, played by Richard Madden, and the next shot takes him to the end. So it's two shots. But the, the reality of that is I shot that whole sequence and then uh, I knew something was wrong with it. We spent a whole day shooting it. I shot it. I couldn't sleep. I woke up, I called Lee Smith, the editor, who was, despite the fact there are no obvious cuts in this movie, a pivotal figure in the putting together of the film. And I said, what's wrong with it? And he said, I felt detached when I watched it. I said, okay, that's fine. That's all you need to say. I felt like I, what I'd done was I backed off the horror. I thought, I wonder if after all this, an audience can literally take any more. And, and I just thought, listen, I've written it. I have to go right down the middle of it. So I, I got up, I went to the set on my own. We were shooting you know, we were, we were only cool at lunchtime because we needed to shoot at the end of the day. I walked out there, it was just two security guards um, who thought I was a weirdo who'd come to visit the set. And, uh, and I, I remarked the positions of the tents. I drew a diagram and Michael Lerman, my first AD, who's here today, I called him up and I said, you've got to come in early. And I, I restaged the whole scene. We restaged the background. I got Christy, the, my co-writer, to write dialogue, I said, write me 20 snippets of dialogue that could be being said by the nurses and doctors in a field hospital. I gave them to Michael, I said, find me, the, you, you go and create 20 different scenarios with these, these bits of dialogue. I want them to do them full out. I may not use them, but I want them full out. I want people screaming, crying, asking for their mother, whatever it is that you think is gonna work. And I'm gonna work with Roger on where the camera goes. We decided that we were going to detach the camera from Schofield at one point and just going to float across the dead bodies lying on the... And we restaged the whole thing um, in, in, in that morning. And, um, and it was way better. But it, it all came from the fact that I was backing off my own initial gut instinct that what we needed was to confront an audience with the reality of what had just happened. And I thought, I, I just have to do it. If it's too much for the audience, then it's too much for the audience. But I, I'm going to just have to do what I said I was going to do. And that's a good example of everyone working in tandem on that one day, you know, and reshooting a scene, turning it around very quickly. But also the speed at which I had to listen to that inner voice that said that that's not quite right. Now, if I'd been shooting it in a conventional way, I probably would have gone with it and thought I'll solve it in the editing room. And it wouldn't have been as good. Um, but because I had to decide if it was right or literally right or wrong, or if it was what I wanted or not what I wanted, I had to confront it on the day. And that's where Lee was so pivotal for me. He, he gave me immediate feedback of someone who wasn't on set, had no interest in, there's a great David Mamet line, I don't know if you know about editing. He says, in the cutting room, um, the director is serving two masters, the movie and himself. It's the editor's job to just serve the movie. And Lee is a master of that. He doesn't want to know what my favorite take is. He doesn't want to know what I thought on the day. He just wants to watch it. And he'll be the person, because you know you, you do 28 takes, let's say, or whatever. You're generally going to go, you, there's a reason you've kept going. You're probably going to go with a movie like this to 26, 27, or 28. And you call Lee, and Lee would go, you know what? Look at take nine. 
I know he made a mistake, we can solve that. I think take nine's the most interesting. And my, your first instinct, it's a very interesting human response, is, oh, for fuck's sake, don't tell me it was take nine, because I wasted the rest of the fucking day. Okay? And I go and watch it in a really bad mood. I'm like, fuck it, he's right. Take nine <laughs> but you know, you, you don't have, and to be confronted by that part of yourself straight away, rather than months later in the cutting room, was really unusual and quite destabilizing on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, you know, so because I would have to say we're matching to take nine, because we had to, we, we had to know what, what the, the A side of the, right. of the stitch was. So yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a really One unusual. One more question about that, and it's a performance question, and it has to do with, did you say anything to George when he sits in that tree and takes out those photographs? What was the conversation? What was the rehearsal that you might have done beforehand to get him to express what you wanted at the very moment of the end of this movie? Uh, you know what it's like with the, when, you've got a, when you're doing a movie. You say everything to them and nothing. You know, I, said, I, I probably said lots to him over the preceding weeks, but on the day, nothing. Well, because if it's, by the way, that was the first take. That's the only time in the movie that scene with Richard Madden right to the end is the first take. And sometimes you don't need to say, you have to, you learn, I think, early on, um, and this is also coming from the theater, I, I learned this, just let, let them, give them, if you trust them, let them do it, and then wait and see. And sometimes you don't have to say anything. You know, these people are pretty good at what they do, and, and by that time we'd shot the whole thing in sequence. He, he brought everything that he had lived through for the previous nine months to that last shot, and, and that, was, that was simply there. I had nothing to do with that. And yet, it was, it was you know, months of work, but I didn't say anything to him on the day, no. Taika, thank you very much. Taika, the end of your movie, The Dancing. Same as the, the choice, <laughs> The choice of actually what would be, in fact, your very last shot, but that very end as they go out the door and, and this dance. Can you talk about how it evolved either through you as director, talking to the writer yourself, well, or how it evolved? Uh, yeah, well, that was, that was there from the very first draft, that, um, the idea. Usually when I'm writing, I usually will start with the end. Then I'll try and come up with a cool beginning, and then try and fill up the middle. <laughs> but um, it's usually, or like, there'll be pieces I'm like, oh, I'd like to see this in the film, I'd like to see this, I'd like to see this. I rejected this from another script, I'll put that in there, make them German. <coughs> and, um, or like, you know, and then just sort of figure it out. It's not often that I have like a very clear idea, it's usually sort of finding it as I write, but I usually will know how I want it to end, and, um, and that was, uh, yeah, I was very clear right from the beginning. I wrote it in 2011, and, and even then I knew I wanted them to be on the street dancing, and I wrote Heroes into that uh, moment as well. Right the song as well? End. Yep. And uh, so yeah, so that, that was, I guess, a point that I knew, I mean, it was one of the few things I knew about the film, I guess. And, and in shooting that, if you remember, <laughs> the, the talking to both of them and actually the staging and its evolution because it evolves. I mean, it starts subtle and then they begin to do it. I'm wondering if you remember what might have been said to your actors at, at, to get to these. Well, the, I mean, so Roman is, um, when, I, when I cast kids, usually they've never acted before and I'm always looking for when we're auditioning, I'm, I'm looking for the, the kid who resembles the character that I've written the most, so that they don't have to act. So then, <laughs> and it's so the the biggest job is actually finding the kid, and um, and it's and it's a long process. I think we auditioned maybe a thousand kids, and he came in about four weeks before we started shooting. So we were mm -hmm. desperate, and um, <laughs> but he 
But he just sort of swooped in, which is happening on every movie. On my second film, Boy, we found that kid. He's incredible. And that was three days before we started shooting. He's wonderful. We swapped him out. I just, I just made a decision, which was heartbreaking and brutal, but also it was necessary. And, um, and what I saw in Roman, who is a very beautiful young man, sensitive and cares deeply about people, was the person that I wanted at the end of the film. So if I knew that I could find that kid, then all I had to do was sort of like put this sort of facade over the top of him, this indoctrinated um, kid who was obsessed with, uh, with fascism, and sort of start the film with that and then strip it away as we get towards yeah. the end of the film. Um, and with Thomason, she's, um, she's a very accomplished actor who's you know, very smart and got it. Um, with her, I didn't give her any sort of real background. She, I knew she was going to do the necessary research. The only other bit of research I told her um, I suggested was to watch um, Heather's because um, I thought that, in my mind, I liked the idea that this girl had a life before this, this period and that what? she was probably a cool kid at school and then sort of, you know, to give her some background. But yeah, but it was always just working towards that end point. What was the music that you played for them when they actually shot this moment? Heroes. Did you actually play the music on set? Yeah, we didn't have the rights to it, but I just sort of felt like um, <laughs> it was the closest I'd get to it. And then, um, and, and it felt like it would be, I'd find something rhythmically <laughs> the same tempo if it didn't work out. Uh, but yeah, it just it felt very special to me that song and that moment, and it, all, it sat with me for <coughs> six or seven years. And I thought, I, you know, I won't back out. The, the moves that both the kids do, particularly uh, Roman's move with his neck and all their head. Oh, neither of them can dance. Hmm? Neither of them can dance. They're terrible. I... Um, <laughs> but I would. So they only shot. I'd stand behind the camera and I would dance for them, and then out it. So like, <laughs> they would. I'd give them an eye line, which is very, very like tight to the lens and uh, in their sort of periphery, I guess, I would be doing these, sort of, these moves and they would copy me as best as possible. <laughs> so I wouldn't like put them opposite each other. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you. Quentin, you have two endings. Yeah. You have that phenomenal sort of, if you will, crane shot that is, that is part of the story of connecting those houses, but you also have a black and white uh, advertisement for a fabulous red apple cigarette as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm interested in that evolution for you as a director and how you did both of those scenes. Well, the thing about it was, it was interesting. Um, I think in the last, since the 2000s, um, uh, I, I didn't do this in the 90s, but since the 2000s, um, I don't shoot my movies necessarily in order, um, not in this religious way, but you know, we try to do most of the stuff that's in the first part of the movie in the first part of the shoot, and most of the stuff that's in the second part of the movie in the second part <coughs> of the shoot. But um, um, maybe not that crane shot that we did that ends the movie, but, uh, but the whole climax per se, you know, when the, the killers come into the house and everything. Um, <clears throat> I always try to uh, leave the ending for the last thing that we shoot. Uh, basically, because I don't, I don't really write these blueprints. I don't write a blueprint for a movie and then we go and do the blueprint. I write this cockamamie novel that there's no way all this shit is going to be in the movie. <laughs> 
I put scenes in the script that I know will never make the movie, all right? But I like them, and, and the actors <laughs> like them, and, and well, hell, I have the money, why don't I actually just shoot it, all right? And, and, you never know, all right? You know, uh, uh, if I'm lucky enough to have the time and whatever, then go all the way, put this material on film. Um, but I know that can never, I mean, with the Irishman, I, it'd be okay, all right? But uh, <laughs> I had a limit. <laughs> and so, uh, um, <laughs> so the thing is, um, so I'm literally kind of stuck, kind of, adapting my my novel like I'm doing a novel I'm adapting my novel every day on the set now I'm shooting it but I'm but I'm I'm seeing what we're shooting and I'm seeing how it's working and I'm seeing what's becoming important I'm seeing what's becoming less important and the reason I'm doing all that I'm like okay well this won't even this won't really make it but hey this is actually I, I never would have guessed that this would make it but this is really powerful. This is really strong. And then maybe that character who wasn't so important to me in the script has like risen and has become more important in, during the course of the shooting. Or just because of the fabric, the way you, you're putting the fabric together. You're, you're learning what your movie truly is. And um, so consequently, by the time we get to the end, after I've shot the whole rest of the movie, I have a pretty good idea what I'm going to do. And so now I kind of know what the movie needs. And maybe I think, and I, I'm sure I always think that the movie needs more at the ending when I'm writing it. But at a certain point, I kind of know, know how much movie I have. I know how much movie there is, how much movie the audience has watched up in this point. So I know, do we need to bear down and get really into it? Or no, just wrap it up, man. Uh, you know, or, or, or any version uh, in, in between. And so in the case of this, I think I had a much more elaborate version of the big action sequence that happens in the, uh, uh, that it's in the house. I mean, even to the degree that I think uh, 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 Brad and Austin, who played Tex, Tex Watson, kind of even like had, choreo there was even a choreographed fight that they did and everything. And then all of a sudden I show up on the set and I'm like, we don't need any of that. And it, was, it wasn't probably my best day as a director for the simple fact that, um, I didn't walk Brad through the fact that I've changed my mind. <laughs> I just changed my mind and dared him to uh, disagree with it. <laughs> Which, as like time was on, I went on. I was like, I should have like walked him through this a little bit more. All right, rather than just like, no, no, we're doing it this way. Um, and the whole crew was like a little bit surprised. And I and rather. Um, and all of a sudden, it just became, no, this is a sequence I want to do later in the editing room. And so it just became about little pieces. Boom, 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 boom. And it was just us hopping around. You know, and there's also the kind of like we've been shooting for a long time. So now you also have this energy of you want to get it done now. You're like, you're, you, and, but that's a good kind of energy. That's, an, that's, an, that's, a, that's a really exciting kind of energy when you finally harness it. And, uh, and, you know, so rather than things being more elaborate, it was much more shot, 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 shot. And people are like, oh, I guess this is how he's going to do it now. Okay, fine. But there, the crew is actually used to being able to watch it more, watch it more unfold, and they have it, and they have a good sense of it. Here it was just, they were, they were, they were forced to cut it in their own mind by seeing how I was doing it in little bits. 
In terms of the very last part of it, which is, is standing outside Sharon Tate's house and that crane shot, and then the fact that because then the fact that titles start, mm -hmm. and then you have this ad. Mm -hmm. Talk about how that evolved and the style, and also directing both of those both of those pieces. That very that sort of last. Well, that last well that last little shot that's been in my mind. I've been working on this for I don't know uh, six or seven years, off and on. And I think about five years ago, I came up with that ending shot. And it's, it's haunted me. That shot has just been haunting me for five or, 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 or six years. And um, we're talking, you're speaking of the crane shot? Yeah, I'm talking about the crane shot where you see Sharon comes out and everything, where you go from the, from the gate and everything. And, um, and it's wonderful and horrible when a shot haunts you. When it gets in, when it gets in you, like you, like you can't function. You can't live until you get until you put it on film and get it out of your system. But then, God, it's also like the greatest thing in the world to actually feel that kind of uh, 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 connection to your work. Um, and I didn't know if we were ever going to be able to do it. I mean, we had to find the two houses. I didn't even write it in a way that like makes a lot of physiological physiological sense that the houses would be able to do all the things I wanted them to be able to do. But then we found it. And actually, it was my first AD who's in, out here who found it with uh, Bob Richardson. It was one of those things where they kept finding houses. And well, they weren't exactly quite right, but you could do this instead, or you could do that instead. and. I was starting to get worn down, like maybe I was going to have to make a choice like that. And they go, God, this is not what Quentin wants. And so they just went up in the Hollywood Hills with Google Maps, and they found the, and they found the two houses. Uh, and luckily, everything, it all worked out. But to go back to what I was saying before, uh, we shot all that stuff in the two houses that are at the end of the block. We shot that fairly early in the shoot. I mean, maybe like, you know, week seven or eight or something like that. And um, uh, so consequently, the shot that's like driving me crazy, the shot that, that's the end of my movie, I shoot that shot, that crane shot from the, from the gate to the overhead to the house, like within like week six or seven. And it was, it kind of fucked me up emotionally a little bit to actually shoot this ending moment for the movie that soon into the shoot. I mean, there, I, I understood everything, but Emotionally, it was like, well, how can there be even more movie to do now that I've shot this shot? Now that I've, I've seen the end right, written, it's like, how can there be even more, more out there? And, but there was. And the, the, uh, um, the, the ad. The, uh, the ad. That was just, we had, a, uh, we had like two days. Um, we had two days to do all the bounty law stuff. And we were on uh, uh, a Western set, and we were doing all the bounty law stuff. And literally, one of the days was the hottest day in Los Angeles that year. And that's like the day that we are trying to do like 37 setups right, to duplicate this entire series. And poor Leo, man, he was running, he was there for every, every 37 setups. All right? He was running back and forth, sweating his balls off. Um, uh, but that was just, uh, but that was easy. That was just one of the things that, that was one of the many things that we did. We did the little uh, Red Apple commercial. And, uh, and I, you know, look, if, if it was up to me, all that media that Rick Dalton does, the movie would just be filled with that. And we'd get around to a story every once in a while. I could just, just keep showing, like, every episode of TV show he did, every, all the movies. I want to see 
half of uh, 14 Fist of McCluskey, I would have shot all that stuff. Uh, uh, so we would shoot all this stuff, I go, well, how can I put this in? How can I get the FBI like all the way in, all right? Not just a little cut to it quickly on the TV. How can I get the Red Apple commercial in? And then I go, oh, hey, the Red Apple commercial in the closing credits, great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. They're, both endings are very powerful in their own way. Bong, in a way, you have two endings as as well in your piece. I continue to 열정적인 얘기를 듣다가 지금 다 까먹었어요. 내 엔딩이 어떤 간 엔딩이었는지. I forgot what my ending was listening to Clinton's passion. 아, 정말 좋은 게 저도 되게 궁금했어요. But it's great because I was so curious. At the end, the film ends with the camera on top of the rooftop, and I thought, as a director, that was a very simple but great decision to make. And so I was, I always wanted to ask him and to hear that he's been dreaming of that ending for the. Past five years, it's been very um, insightful. Were you dreaming your ends? <laughs> so my ending is very powerfully tied to the opening shot of the film. So the ending and the opening came to me together. So the film, the entire film is aligned very vertically according to class, the rich on top and the poor on bottom. And the opening shot of the film, you have the camera in the semi-basement home craning down so it's a cruel but sad ending because he's writing a letter to his father in Morse code um, announcing that he will purchase that house and all he has to do is come up the stairs and you actually see that scene on screen you know under broad daylight they um, they meet together and they share a hug and then it cuts right to um, the boy and that dark uh, dark small room in a winter night um, and it cranes down on his face. So when uh, the father finally comes up the stairs to the rich house and they share a hug, on set I got emotional as well. Um, we built that house on, a, on an open field um, outside and we calculated the direction of the windows and the house um, so that it can have as much broad daylight as possible. And there was a certain period of time when sunlight would sort of pour into the garden. And so it was actually all natural lighting in the morning. So that was actually the last scene that we shot at that rich house and the next day we just started demolishing the set and I felt very strange because I wanted to live there. <laughs> so, do, so, so do some of us. Question for you, that choice of, of the angle that you do when the father and son embrace, you're very, we are very far away, far distant. Yeah, yeah. What made you choose that rather than, let's say, go in for a closer shot? What happened? And you said you were moved, so yeah. I'm interested in why you chose that. That's the exactly same question I wanted to ask to Quentin. Mm -hmm. Why the, your camera never uh, close. close to the chair on Well, head. you answer first, and then we'll find <laughs> out. <what happened. laughs> So I think it's a, uh, you can say it's sort of a Korean or Asian sensibility where when the emotions are the most intense and you have that burning emotion happening between the characters, you almost want to stay far away so that the scene is faint and that way you feel the emotion more intensely when you can see it all, um, all happening. So you feel, you feel if, if you had shot a closer moment between those two of them, it would not have had the emotional effect you wanted. That visual made the difference, yeah? It wasn't as if we had close-ups of the characters and then decided to take it out during the editing process. From the very um, initial storyboarding stage, I knew that I wanted a wide shot. 
And even with the Irish man, you know, you see De Niro through the door cracks, and that gave me an, a very strange emotional response. So I wanted to ask Marty about we're it. We're about to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad we're on the same page about this. Although I do want me we'll go to Dr. Quentin and why the wine, not a closer, but but I'm going to ask Marty for this question. <laughs> Marty, in the the last their last shots in the movie, one of them is is quite remarkable because it takes that nurse, I guess, out into the hallway and then comes back and there's a change of light, there's a change of time, and we discover him change of outfit. I don't know if it's the same shot or how you did it, but then you have those last, if you will, two shots, and one of them is this low angle looking at him, and then the other is the wide one at the end. Can you talk about how that evolved for you? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll try. I think um, to, uh, to say, immediately that that was the original ending that we knew was going that way from reading the book, from my discussions with De Niro and um, certainly with Steve Zalian. And I said, let's aim for that. Um, at one point I even said, but should he shut the door? No, um, uh, because he's still waiting for some kind of uh, uh, salvation of some kind, some kind of uh, forgiveness, some kind of, uh, some kind of, uh, somebody to save his soul or something to save his soul, so to speak. So he leaves that open. Could be the daughters, it could be whatever. In any event, then the problem was shooting it because um, that we did shoot towards the end of the picture. Um, and the scenes with that young priest, uh, Father Mars, uh, were, except for the last few lines of the dialogue uh, um, of, of the film, uh, particularly in the chapel when they, in confession, were from a real confession. They were not uh, scripted. Uh, Bob's lines were scripted, but the priests were not. And in any event, that gave us the feeling. I shot that first, so uh, before shooting the scene in the room, and that gave me uh, more confidence and as to how to how to um, express this this idea um, of this old man in this room. Um, I knew, for one thing, that the movie in my mind came together fairly quickly and reading reading the book and the piece of music came to my mind immediately and that was in the still of the night by the five satins and that is the pace of the film that's the rhythm uh that's the um emotional uh the emotional uh, impact of the picture comes from that not nostalgia for an old 50s song i don't care about that it, it's about it's about um uh, still of the night going back to listening to sermons or uh, in the 50s coming from a Roman Catholic background where the priests would always talk about or people would always talk about the veil of tears <laughs> and the uh, um, death coming like a thief in the night when you least expect it. So in the still of the night is love and also exiting. Huh? So this was the movie. Um, I knew it had to start that way and I knew people would say, well, that reminds me of the shot in the Copacabana. It has nothing to do with it. I just have to find this guy sitting there, you know, um, and let's just go through this um, uh, this retired living uh, place with the camera. However, the ending, the problem was once the priest got up and left and he says, is it Christmas? Bob says, is it Christmas? And the priest says, yeah, almost. And um, it cuts back to Bob, small in the frame. And he said, do you mind leaving the door open a little bit? And I thought I'd end it there, you know, but I felt that. I didn't quite like that um, because it's almost as if 
you know, could you leave the door open a little bit? Uh, I don't like being here with the door closed. And then the camera tracks out. It's like corny. Corny is not a good word to use, but it's cliche. I've seen it before. It signals the ending of a movie. I don't want to signal the uh, the ending. Um, So what the hell to do? I know I got to wind up in the hallway and show through the crack. I know that. And that's got to be really simple. And simple is hard. (laughs) Can't even think about making it simple. You just got to do it. You got to see it. And so um, I remember it was Easter weekend when we were shooting that. Um, And I shot it through the doorway then. And um, in the editing, we found it was one of the most difficult things to do because of two things. One, um, from cutting from the interior of him telling the priest to close the door in small in the frame and you're inside the room to the priest coming out into the hall and leaving the door open and seeing him in the background. uh, It just didn't seem to have an emotional impact. Mm -hmm. And so something I hadn't planned on, which was that low angled shot of Bob in the middle of those two shots. And then it became, how long should that be on? Uh, and where did I get it from? Because I shot it for another reason, which I didn't use. And um, um, I, I tried again, pulling that shot out of the uh, close-up of Bob between the two wide shots, and it didn't have the emotional impact. And then we found the right beat, the amount of time that should be on. And then I said, okay, then we were fine. The bigger problem became when to start the music, because it was obvious in the still of the night begins the movie, it ends the movie. Again, cliche. All right, so how does it end the movie without being cliche? Well, why don't we start it while he's in the chair and you see through the door? And I thought, everybody, how about this? Tracking out and putting the music over it, that's even worse. I said, so now what the hell do we do? Okay, that took such a long time. Starting inside, uh, putting it on the, um, uh, putting, starting the music on the shot of him in the hall, through the door, uh, starting the music. And I always felt it's an intrusion. Where the hell is this coming from? When I screened the picture, it really annoyed me and finally stumbled upon the idea of cutting to black and then slowly bringing that music back in, you know, without it tugging at the heartstrings or or being sentimental or nostalgic, you see. And and so that was uh, that as far as the visual was concerned, that was from the beginning. The execution of it was was a uh, an arduous, uh, 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 not arduous to shoot, but arduous in the construction of the picture. Um, again, uh, this is something uh, because of the strangeness of this uh, production itself, uh, you know, one has to address the issue of length, I would think. There's no doubt. But we never intended um, the length to be uh, what it was. We just played the film, you know, well, and in terms of the um, uh, company that was making the film for a streaming service or apparently being shown in theaters, too, you say, well, you know, what if it plays as it plays and <clears throat> some people will see it um, in sections? I have a lot of people telling me, uh, some doctors, uh, uh, surgeons telling me I watch 15 minutes every night. You know, <laughs> you can't watch the whole These are surgeons who have to get up at five in the morning to go and uh, operate on people. Um, I have people telling me I watch it for five or six hours in one day. I go back, I watch scenes. And, I know, I know that if you see it from beginning to end in a theater, let's say, or even in a home theater, it's a different experience. And so we took a chance, really. Um, and the only way that guided me through this through this uh, uh, mystery of making this film was the projection of the film itself. Uh, I didn't show it to many people. 
only a few people. Uh, I had to feel right about it. And I figured, well, this may be the last, I got to say, it may be your last chance, man. Just go with what you feel in your heart. And if it plays for you, and if there are a couple of people around to say, Marty, you know this or that, and you take that into consideration, fine. But um, as a last chance, so to speak, you say, I pour it all in. What can I do? Uh, everything goes on the table. You just, you know, gamble it all. Um, and it might play, it might play, Jeremy, for different venues. I don't know that. <laughs> so it's experimental in that way. And um, uh, having said that, 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 that <clears throat> knowing that we're going to end with an old man in, a, in, a, in an, an, age, an old age home with the door open, you see this guy in there and this guy who's had a pretty horrific life. Um, um, it's a hell of a chance. Technical question. There, right before that shot, there is the shot that takes you into the hallway and then take, takes you back. Was that one shot or how was it evolved? Well, that became a, a script issue in that um, we had uh, scenes in the um, hospital room with the nurse. Then we had scenes with the priest and then a couple of other things. And uh, what happened was that ultimately the scene with the priest where he's uh, uh, Frank is in confession and the priest is talking about the will, the will for uh, 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 he's talking about the will to um, for sorrow and for remorse um, that I wanted in the chapel. So I had to find a way to get them out of the room, go in the chapel. Then I had to figure a way to get them back in the room. And um, by doing that, I went back, did the scene in the chapel, went back to the nurse in the room. And I said, well, now we got to follow the nurse out. I said, so why don't we just then pan the camera? And um, we've seen this a lot in films and in theater where the lights change. And in hospitals, in hospitals late at night, like two in the morning, it's always three in the morning, you know, and you hear these sounds, these sounds, um, shuffling the feet, people, and it creates, there's a mood and a, an atmosphere that is very, very special. Um, and so I wanted to create that. And we go into the room, we find that the priest is there. Um, uh, but that was uh, two shots, it was two. changing the light, going from one, going from the bright light and basically just fading down the, uh, the noise in the hallway and a few people and, and then bringing up what could be, is really the absolution. The absolution for this confession, you're bringing that up on the soundtrack and you come in and basically it's over. But by that point, in that little move into that room, uh, Frank has aged even more in a sense, maybe not physically, but but he's aged completely. He's almost somewhat pretty confused, I think, at certain points there. Not quite sure. We hope you enjoyed listening to part one of this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Theatrical Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org slash events. And be sure to download next week's episode, where our five Theatrical Feature Film nominees will continue their discussion. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 